baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to another year of Space Boffins, the 10th anniversary, in fact. I'm Sue Nelson. I'm Richard Hollingham. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And this time we'll be continuing our theme of the return to the moon with an insight into China's plans. And we talked to the UK team building the first lunar communications satellite. Uh, We'll also be chatting about the women with the right stuff who should have flown into space and celebrating the chimp that did. Now, it's hard to believe that it was only 2003, less than 20 years ago, that China first launched a human being into space. Well, since then, its space programme has gone steadily from strength to strength. China launched its first space lab, Tiangong-1, or Heavenly Palace-1, in 2011, a spacecraft to Mars in July 2020, and just a few months ago landed yet another spacecraft on the moon, uh, Chang'e 5, this time to bring back Lunar samples. Only the USA and Russia have ever done this before and just before Christmas those samples were returned to Earth. Well to discuss China's many missions and no doubt to correct my pronunciation or getting the spacecraft mixed up with the rovers uh, we're joined by journalist Andrew Jones who's based in Finland and specialises in the Chinese space programme for Space News. Welcome, Andrew, to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. I've been listening for a good few years, so it's um, a delight to to join you for this. You say that now. Yeah. Yes. Oh, look, we're watching Andrew at the same time on Zoom, and we've just seen a cat's bottom come across the screen. I think that's the first time that's ever happened. The cat is way in front of you. Yeah. this This is Cosmo, who is two years old and is very, very keen to uh, get involved in everything that's going on, including podcasts, it seems. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Well, let's start with uh, Changi 5, since it's their most recent achievement. I mentioned that they've returned the sample. So what's this status of the mission? Because this has been really important for China, hasn't it? Uh, this has uh, been a tremendously successful mission, and it's most complex so far. So this this was launched in late November, and it was a 23-day mission. It's involved... Sorry, there's a cat on my shoulders now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're professionalism. It's very good. This was China's most complex mission. They carried out this in 23 days, including uh, launch, going into lunar orbit, and then having the separation of the spacecraft so you had a a lander with an ascent vehicle going down to the lunar surface and an orbiter with a return capsule staying in lunar orbit so we had the the lander make a a soft landing on december 1st then within a two-day window they managed to collect samples using a drill drilling down to it was supposed to be two meters and i think they got to one meter and it turned out that there were some very difficult uh, rocks and slates to get through. So rather than risk losing the samples or a delay, they stopped at around one meter. So they collected around about 250 grams of samples using this. They're aiming for around about 500 by going down to two meters. Uh, Meanwhile, a scoop was collecting samples from the surface um, of around one and a half kilos. So this was then put into an ascent vehicle, which was then able to lift off from the lander and go and rendezvous and dock with the waiting orbiter in lunar orbit. So this was something China had never tried before, lifting off from the moon. And that docking as well was important. That's the first time this robotic docking has been um, done around the moon. Yes, that's right. So the Apollo missions, they, they carried out this lunar orbit and rendezvous, which allowed the the uh, two astronauts to go down to the surface and then come back up and meet with the service module and then return to Earth safely. So China has followed this route, which is much more complex than, say, what the Soviet Union did in the 1970s, which was basically land on the moon and then send the return capsule straight back. So this this was very challenging. There's some great footage which we got to see of this after the fact because it wasn't live streamed. So this was uh, not only a big challenge, but also this is an indication that China is also looking at two other major projects. One would be a Mars sample return that would need a similar kind of architecture, but also then with an eye on 
sending astronauts to the moon and bringing them back safely sometime in the 2030s. Why does this matter? What's the motivation for it? Because, I mean, this is essentially, I mean, it's new technology, but it's it's a retread of things that have been done in the past. I mean, most recently by the, the Russians or the Soviet Union in the 1970s. We'd have to go back into the early days of China, looking into studies to launching its own lunar mission. So I think they had... They were looking at concepts of just a basic impactor in the 1970s, back when China's space program was in its very early days and also being impacted by the Cultural Revolution, which meant that resources were very, very scarce for these kinds of endeavors. Then we had quite a substantial amount of lunar samples sent to China, and that allowed China to begin looking at these, these samples and working out what it might want to do at the moon itself in in future decades. So there was um, a geologist called Ouyang Ziyuan who was studying these samples. And then he turned into kind of um, a big proponent for China launching its own interplanetary and and lunar missions. And one thing he was particularly interested in was the idea of helium-3, which is uh, an isotope of helium, which theoretically could be used for fusion power. That was something which was stated in China's plans and as a rationale. So how much that was believed as something which is, you know, very easily doable at any point is to be... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that we can still see your cat walking across the, in the screen. You hold, held that answer together while a cat walked across your shoulders, stood on your head and then walked across in front of you with its tail in your mouth. Yeah, so I, I, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yeah, pretty impressive here. Um, I mean, China announced over a year ago that it was planning a, a research station on the moon. Are those plans still going ahead? Okay, so when China finally approved its lunar missions. The idea was that there would be three steps. There would be to launch an orbiter, then put a lander and a rover on the moon. And then finally, which we just saw with Chang'e 5, would be to land, collect samples and deliver them to Earth. So those three steps have now been expanded. And the studies, I think, have been in the works for quite a few years, at least 2015. And that's partly because of how the Chang'e program has been progressing. I mean, it's been very, very successful. The other thing that's happened is in the last 10 years, the moon has become a lot more interesting with discoveries of lunar ice and the idea of in-situ resource utilization. So when, when China was back in the early 2000s, it was maybe in an Asian moon race with Japan and India, partly for prestige and developing its own technology. But now we're also looking at a much more global interest in the moon and greater possibilities in terms of resources. So with all the the combination of this new interest and the success of the Chang'e mission, they have approved a fourth step, which would involve, I think, Chang'e 6, Chang'e 7 and Chang'e 8 as the early missions. That would be a lunar sample return from the South Pole, followed by two landings with Chang'e 7 and Chang'e 8 at the South Pole. And those would be carrying out investigations of the radiation environment, the topography, the possible resources there. Uh, water ice would be another thing. And then with the, this later mission, Chang'e 8, that would be also looking at things like in-situ resource utilization and 3D printing with the view to establishing a more long-term base which would first be robotic, but then that would also then be a crude outpost in, say, the 2030s. So the, the timelines are still vague. We, do, we don't get you know, press conferences and detailed mission blueprints and conferences where all of this is laid out in detail, but we, we get the occasional paper and abstract and bits and pieces in the media. So we're able to say that this is going forward and this is generally what the plans are. But the timeline probably will be changing. It does sound remarkably like the space race of the 1960s with, you know, two parallel space programs with with very similar goals. You know, you've got the US-led effort with Artemis and then you've got the the Chinese program, but and no overlap at all, which, which does seem extraordinary in the 21st century. That, that's an interesting observation. I would I would say that it's it's different. Um, I wouldn't use the term race. Because what we've seen with China is they've set out long-term goals and they've been 
set on achieving these and it hasn't been racing against someone or looking at what America's doing or, or Russia. It's more about developing expertise and capabilities and technologies. So if you look at the the human spaceflight program they have, they approved this in 1992 when the size of the economy must have been so many times smaller than it is now. I mean, China probably wasn't even in the top 10 economies in the world at that point. That shows quite quite a lot of forward thinking because if you think about it, only two countries at that point had actually been able to independently launch astronauts into orbit. So that's quite quite a commitment. They've only launched, so you mentioned that in the intro, I think 2003 was the first crewed mission and they've only done six altogether. So they haven't been in a, you know, in a, in a big rush to do things. It's more about pushing, pushing forward with each mission. So going from one astronaut to two astronauts to three astronauts, trying spacewalks, try, um, testing at a space lab and life support in low Earth orbit, those kinds of things. Also with the moon, as I say, this started in the early 2000s uh, with China because it wanted to do it. Partly, well, a mix of things which would be international prestige, competing with India and Japan, perhaps uh, developing their own technologies, which would then have spin-offs that so would be good for the economy. And now it just happens that America is now, and the European Union and Japan and, and Russia, are all interested in the moon again because of these potential resources. China's currently described as the world's third largest space power. How soon do you think it will overtake, particularly Russia, I think, to get to number two? That's a good question. There are some who are thinking now, based on China's launch rate, and that it's trying to foster and develop its own space industry with lots of commercial actors that China has essentially gone past Russia. So if, if you look at what the Soviet Union and Russia have achieved and what they're still capable of, they haven't yet done the things that Russia is capable of and has done. However, the idea that we get, at least in the Western press, is that Russia's capabilities are diminishing. There's problems with replacing expertise and, and so on. So I think China, in some kind of plan which they put out, which is um, very forward-thinking and maybe aspirational plan to 2045, which included developing reusable launch capabilities, a reusable space plane. And also, I think by 2045, it was a nuclear-powered shuttle, which sounds very futuristic, to say the least. So I think they, they had the, the idea of passing Russia's space industry by around 2025. I'm, I'm not quite sure about the date. It might have been 2030. But if you look at the activity now, I mean, China in 2018, 2019, launched the most number of rockets. Um, it was surpassed by United States in 2020. But um, part of this is China catching up with lots of space infrastructure, like its own version of GPS and imaging satellites and so on. But certainly you can see that there's a lot of momentum and a lot going on in China's space program. So I think China's the one to watch rather than Russia's space program at the moment, even though they haven't quite caught up, as it were. Yeah. Uh, you've got this you know, incredible insight into the into the Chinese space program but i wonder whether they feel i mean it's easy for us to say well they're they're very secretive but i wonder on the other side whether they feel isolated from the rest of the world whether this isn't always just such a, a deliberate decision to to keep things secret until they've done them yeah that's an interesting observation again um i think there's a lot to, a lot of things that go into this so china does have some kind of regular updates through its state media about what its space activities will be. On the government side, it produces a, a white paper every five years, a space white paper, which will detail what it's done in the last five years and what it plans to do in the next five years. So we'll see one of those coming out later this year. And that will be very interesting to see what their plans are, but particularly if they do approve something like human spaceflight missions to the moon. So we can see that they're working on all the different parts of that puzzle, but they haven't officially approved that. So there's cultural, strategic and political aspects to why they maybe don't communicate as much. So for someone who tries to follow closely like me, I'm able to get um, a, a decent overview of what their plans are. And it seems to kind of match up. They're always surprises. They talked about developing a space plane, but then in September last year, they actually 
launch something which might be a space plane, but we still don't know because we, did, we didn't see any pictures of that. So, it, you know, there's always surprises and mysteries, but also there is a lack of understanding outside of China as to what they're doing, um, a lack of trust of what is being said. On the other hand, you have the United States, which has effectively barred China from the International Space Station, and the cat is back on my shoulders. Um, there's also international trade arms regimes which prevents U.S. technology being shipped to China for, for launches. So China's ostracized from some space activities through that. So there is some separation and there's some misunderstandings. And there's also, for example, we very rarely get to see live streams of launches or regular updates. So if, if a launch fails, for example, we won't hear anything other than, okay, the launch failed. So no images, no details of the payloads and so on. So it's a very different cultural and political way of dealing with space information. So it, ma it makes it challenging, but also very interesting for someone like me. And we've got um, another sort of a, uh, achievement coming up as well in February with Tianwen-1, another beautifully named mission. This one's Quest for Heavenly Truth. It's just, just poetic. And this will be arriving in Mars, at Mars in orbit. Yeah, so this, this is China's first independent interplanetary mission. So this is a, a big deal for China, a big deal for uh, the public who seem to be very interested in this. So we're expecting it to enter Mars orbit on February 10. So that, that would be the, the orbiter. But there's also a rover in this mission. And that landing attempt, uh, what we know at the moment, is that will take place in May. So they'll spend a few months in, in Mars orbit using the, the images on, this, on the, the spacecraft to get a, a, good, a good idea of the landing site and the conditions there and then, then make this entry, descent and landing attempt, which will be, you know, this again will be a, another major challenge for China. This is something that only the United States has managed to achieve, uh, although the Soviet Union did manage to have one operating for a few seconds, I think. Yeah, another very interesting mission to watch. And also we should have following TN1 missions coming. So a Mars sample return, a mission to near-Earth asteroid and a comet launching in the next few years, and then a Jupiter mission in 2030, which might also include a landing on Callisto, which is um, which a bit, bit of a scoop for you. So That's amazing news about Callisto. I mean, thank you so much because I've enjoyed reading all your pieces because it, it, it's you know you've got such an expertise in this area and it's it's as you say it's quite difficult to get information on this and and um yeah you've been like an encyclopedia britannica for us when it comes to finding out about china so it's been great to have you on the podcast andrew Oh, thanks. That's that's very kind. Unfortunately, lots of this information <laughs> goes in and comes back out. You know, after the article's written, it's kind of, you know. I think that's a, a journalist's forte, isn't it? Because you, <laughs> I say it's like a computer um, files in that you have to actually sometimes put files into the trash can in order to make memory space for new stories and new things. So because uh, people, like you say, do expect you to just remember something that you did. I was going to say 10 years ago, to be honest, it could be like, 10 days ago I will, yeah. I will have moved on <laughs> absolutely I've read articles from like I've written two weeks ago and like I can barely remember writing it so <laughs> yeah. our journalist life well Andrew Jones thank you very much indeed for uh, giving us that amazing update on the uh, Chinese space industry and the first interviewee who's who's ever done an interview with us with a cat on their shoulder which is absolutely fantastic uh, can you also share with us when you saved the file because you're you're just recording this locally and we'll we'll stitch it all together afterwards uh, just share with us uh, what what your predictive text uh, wanted to sh save the file as well it turns out and I, I don't know how much this is due to my involvement but trying to put in space boffins ended up as space buffoons well there we go <laughs> I think we might change our podcast <laughs> name, actually. I think that's so much yes, better. Yeah, I don't suppose I, anyone's got that to, to main. No, so no, okay. exactly. Yep. Spacebuffoons.com. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Thanks very much. We're used to communications between the Earth and the Moon sounding like this. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming. Okay, I just checked uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's... Uh, that hasn't collapsed too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy. Pretty good little jump. 
That's Neil Armstrong about to set foot on the lunar surface. Until relatively recently, every communication between mission control and astronauts was separated by those iconic beeps. They're known as Quindar tones, and they were triggered by the Capcom keying their press-to-talk button. But with multiple missions from several nations living and working on the moon in future, communications are going to need to be a lot more sophisticated. And with that comes opportunity. British small satellite company SSTL is building the moon's first commercial communication satellite, Lunar Pathfinder. They've already signed up the European Space Agency ESA, thanks to money invested by the UK Space Agency in the Artemis Lunar Exploration Programme. I've been speaking to SSTL's Head of Exploration, Nelly Offord, about what Lunar Pathfinder will be able to do. Lunar Pathfinder will be in a, in a highly elliptical orbit so that we can maximize the coverage of the South Pole, which today is anticipated to be the destination of most surface missions, at least in the, in the coming years. So it will cover everything or it will see everything at some point in the orbit, but it will spend a lot more time hovering across the South Pole of the moon. What it will do is is simply relay data. So it will hail a lunar asset, whether it's on the surface of the moon or the orbit, gather the data from that lunar asset and then send it back to us when it's in visibility of the ground station. So that could be a rover on the moon or, or even an astronaut on the moon in time? Anything at all, yeah. And you're putting this out there, and this is a commercially funded project, you're putting this out there before you know for certain that they're going to be rovers or astronauts on the moon. I suppose NASA is saying it's going to have astronauts on the moon by 2024. But I mean, is this a, a risk or is it fairly certain that we will need infrastructure around the moon to for navigation and communication? It's a bit the chicken and the egg, isn't it? You don't know whether you're going to have enough demand when you're putting the infrastructure, but you know that you need the infrastructure to generate the demand. So what the bets that we are, t- that we are making here is that by putting infrastructure around the moon, we're going to lower the entrance tickets to lunar mission and there will be more lunar mission and it will generate more demand for the service. So we are betting on a on a virtuous circle if you if you like. Now yes it is a commercial initiative so the service will be commercially available and we are funding it on private um, funding but we also have a commercial partnership with ESA. And ESA, uh, through this commercial partnership, is uh, our first anchor customer. So we have a certain level of guarantee that the service that we are putting up in uh, in orbit around the moon will be used and it will stimulate the market. And NASA is also interested. So we have a certain assurance that we will have customers. And that's what's allowing us to, to make the investment and to take the business risk. And this is, you know, a Pathfinder mission. So really a, t- a test mission. But you are looking at having a constellation of communication satellites and navigation satellites, or maybe satellites that c- that can do both. So, essentially, providing communications and navigation, so an equivalent of GPS, yes. for anyone on the moon or anything on the moon. Absolutely, yes. So, ESA and NASA actually both in in parallel have been uh, launching requests for information as to how a constellation could provide both uh, communication and navigation services. Navigation services are going to become crucial when we're starting uh, in-situ resource utilization, research, uh, very precise localization of where resources are found. Uh, so like m- mining, so mining, mining on the moon. Yeah, absolutely mining. Also uh, precision landing is going to become a lot more important. Today, if, uh, you know, it's more important to make sure that you're, you're landing into a, onto a surface that will allow you to land safely. Tomorrow, not only you'll need, you'll, you'll be needing to land safely, but you will need to land at the very precise location where you want to mine. So, you know, navigation is going to become a lot more important as, uh, as we are doing more sophisticated things around around the moon so yes we are looking at the constellation 
it is it is a study phase we've already uh, done uh, a study phase in uh, in partnership with uh, with Gunhilly and MDA for ESA and now we're pushing forward with uh, with a second phase of study i mean this is incredibly exciting i mean this is the sort of thing that Looking back at some of my, you know, science fiction books or or future books that I used to have a lot of when I was young, um, and sort of talking about mining on the moon or talking about lunar bases and all the rest of it, you're actually doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we are on the maybe the less dreamy part of it. So um, the Moon Village Association. Uh, workshop and symposium was yesterday and and the day before and when you look at those presentations it's full of uh, lunar architects uh, creating moon villages and gyms and there's even a, a module to for astronauts to keep their pets and that is that is a lot closer to the science fiction that that you and I uh, might have read when we were teenagers now what we're doing is an infrastructure that is much more real if you like in the sense that it is providing the commodities that we have on us and that we don't even think about you know we we don't question the fact that we have a, a phone signal also, also sometimes i do in my house but uh, <laughs> you know that we don't question the fact that we can have access to the internet we we do not wonder anymore what provides this navigation signal when we step into our car and somehow we absolutely need to have the gps on even if we've been to that place 10 times before that that's the sort of things we don't we don't think about today on earth and that we will need on the moon without really thinking about it either so we are hoping to be part of the backstage of uh, of your science fiction books and when you listen to any of the Apollo era missions from the moon, there's always that beep, that iconic beep that everyone expects when you go from, you know, Earth to to astronaut on the moon. You get that slight delay and the beep. Are you yeah. going to incorporate a beep into your uh, into your communications? We should do. Uh, I'll <laughs> I'll pass on your comments to the team. <laughs> Nelly Offord, Head of Exploration at SSTL. And next month, we'll hear from the Goonhilly Ground Station in Cornwall, who are gearing up to receive those first communications from astronauts on the moon. And thanks to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter or by email info at boffinmedia.co.uk and we'd love to hear from you. And by the way, thank you very much to Hayden for his Space Boffins Christmas gift, which was an amazing sort of Dr. Spock sort of bobblehead thing well not a bobblehead thing like a special vinyl toy thing because he knows i love star trek and and we love you too hayden thank you yeah. do send us any gifts if you want <laughs> yeah. gifts money i mean we'll we'll yeah. take anything uh, i just also want to mention uh well we're kind of on the admin section um the uh tim peak interview we did in the last space boffins the december space boffins if you've not heard it do listen uh he was fantastic and i think really insightful really interesting um there is still this uh competition on the uk space agency website inspired by tim is is the campaign and winners get to speak to tim peak get to meet tim peak and he is lovely i mean genuinely he is really nice (laughs) and you're not contractually (laughs) contractually obliged to say that actually i didn't say hayden's surname i think i should it's hayden garrity yes any other haydens any any other haydens if you'd like to send us gifts the the darth vader's hayden isn't he hayden christensen or something yeah Sadly, he didn't send us a gift, but never mind. Anyway, 2021. We know where he lives, though. We do know where yeah, he we've lives. Been, we've, we've been actually been... Driven past his house. We've, we've had yeah. coffee with his next-door neighbour. That's like a really sad, tenuous link to fame, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. In Canada. That's right, yeah. <laughs> was it Canada? Yeah, yeah it, it was, was Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, Near yeah. Toronto. Toronto, yeah. that's right. We're not stalking him on his... Yeah. Right. Anyway, where was I? Yes, about 2021. Apart from being 10th anniversary of Space Boffins, it's also the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's history historic achievement as the first human being in space, pipping the Americans to the post who had their own Mercury 7 astronauts preparing for glory at the same time. Now, there's a lot of renewed interest in the Mercury 7 at the moment, not least thanks to the 
series, The Right Stuff, on Disney+. Plus. More people are also getting to hear about those women aviators who wanted to follow in the men's footsteps, now, now known as the Mercury 13, because as the Apple TV series For All Mankind, which reimagines an alternate history where the space race continued and women also landed on the moon. And one character's uh, Molly Cobb, her surname is a tribute to Jerry Cobb from the Mercury 13, the first woman to pass those same tests as the, the Mercury 7. And, and Jerry Cobb died during the production of, the, of that series. Now, if you want to read a wonderful book about this era of history, then I can totally recommend Rebecca Siegel's To Fly Among the Stars because it tells the stories of both the Mercury 7 and 13 in parallel and in context. Now, in theory, it's it's aimed at those who are around the early teens. So it's like a young adult's book. But honestly, ignore that because it's fabulous. I, I had to check. Are you sure it's for young adults? Because I just think it's, a, it's just a great space book. It's well worth reading. It's written beautifully, simply, credibly well researched. And it's got great pictures scattered throughout, not just having to go into the you know, into the middle and then back to where you were because they're all, all through it. Now, obviously, I have a slightly vested interest in, in, in part of the story, having written Wally Funk's Race for Space because Wally was the youngest member of the Mercury 13. So I began by asking Rebecca what she felt the male astronauts and the female aviators who'd also wanted to be astronauts had in common. I think they all had enormous egos, <laughs> just huge confidence, And I think that that is a necessity if you are going to pursue something like high-level aviation, where what you're doing is dangerous, often untested. Um, I think you need to have a huge ego in order to, number one, want to have that job, and number two, survive that job. So I think they all had that in common, but I think it manifested itself differently between the men and the women. I think for the men, that ego showed up in terms of some incredible pranks and hot-shotting that they did in their aircraft. You know, the book has story after story of these guys doing sort of ridiculous stunts. Tell the one about Alan Shepard. He was flying a jet called the Banshee, and the in Maryland, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge was not yet completed. It had just half of it had been built. And Shepard was coming home from a flight, and he thought, well, I know what I could do with that bridge. So he did a loop under the bridge, over and back under again in a jet, and came home, was mildly scolded, went back out on a later flight. He was flying home over Ocean City Beach, noticed a big crowd, was laying out, enjoying the water. So he just went ahead and did a very low pass over the sunbathers, low enough that he apparently blew some women's bikini tops off. Again, didn't get in huge trouble. I think the closest he came to getting into real trouble was he once did a low pass over a formation of Navy men at 150 feet. So that was low enough to send a huge group of sailors literally ducking into the bushes because they thought he was going to take them all out. But he didn't. It was just Alan Shepard, you know, pulling a prank. But, you know, that wasn't necessarily even that unique. A lot of these guys did stuff like that. You know, Scott Carpenter once was flying a big plane called an A3D. And it's huge, uh, big, heavy, big wings. And on this flight, he just decided, I'm going to roll it and see what happens. We rolled this huge plane, luckily didn't fall apart. He landed it, got in trouble, didn't really impact his career. As you can tell, you know, story after story of these guys pushing limits and sort of breaking the rules and not getting in deep trouble indicates sort of their status in the world. You know, they were talented and accepted as these heroic hotshots. And so they had a pretty loose reign when it came to this kind of stuff. The women, I should acknowledge, the women did pull some pranks as well. I think they probably had the same tendency to want to do that, break rules in the air. Um, But I think they were perhaps a little more reserved because they Didn't want to get in trouble because their position as pilots was much more tenuous. But, you know, in B. Stedman's memoir, she talks about as a teenager, she would play follow the leader with three girlfriends in the air. So they'd take off in a line, one after the other, and um, whoever was in 
the first position in this line of airplanes would just start doing loops and rolls and turns and everybody else would just try to catch up and do the same thing. Incredibly dangerous for a group of teenagers to do, but it sort of fits into that same pattern of bold flying, um, slightly reckless flying, but fueled by that super confidence. But I think more so for the women, the way that they exhibited that ego and confidence is simply by the by the way they tried to get into different types of aircraft. So I think whereas the men showed their ego by doing wild stunts in military aircraft, the women showed their ego by simply trying to fly whatever they could. You know, for a woman to get into an air race, it was a much bigger deal than for a man. For a woman to set an aviation record, that was a much bigger deal than for a man to do it. And so I think every time these women tried something new, tried to get their foot in the door in a new field of aviation for a new record, for a new race, that was evidence of a huge ego. Because that kind of confidence and that kind of bravery to take on a challenge like that would be a really big deal in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Absolutely. A a lot has been discussed about the the tests that the Mercury 7 took in terms of, and I've even heard like um, ESA medical doctors say that, and and NASA actually, medical (laughs) physicians as well, say that there's no way that they would put astronauts through the same (laughs) sort of stresses today that they did then. And it's particularly, even though I, you know, I've I've read about them myself so many times, it still shocked me in the book reading about Gordon Cooper in terms of what happened to his body when he did a centrifuge test. Right. So in the book I talk about, um, they were doing training at the Johnsonville, Pennsylvania centrifuge, which was a big one. It was on a 50 foot arm and it could swing these guys around at incredible speed so they could practice enduring increased G-loads that they would experience on launch or landing or perhaps in an emergency. And so they slowly built up. So for a pilot, all these guys who had flown jets, this wasn't a huge deal at first because like four Gs in a centrifuge, five Gs, that's something that they would have regularly encountered in their airplanes. However, NASA wanted them to be able to sustain much higher G-loads and train under higher G-loads in case they needed to abort their mission. Basically, all that would involve them doing is moving a hand. But moving a hand at 10 Gs, 12 Gs is really hard. And so they were working their way up. John Glenn talked about how he hated doing these exercises because it was miserable. Once you got past, you know, 10, 11 Gs, they're passing out. They learned that they had to flex their muscles just to stay conscious, keep some blood going to the brain. They would breathe in these huffs so that they could keep their lungs full of air. And um, John Glenn topped out at about 16 Gs. He said it was horrible. And then Gordon Cooper writes about topping out at 18 Gs. And when he did that, he um, almost passed out, managed to keep it together. They stopped the centrifuge. He hopped out. Well, I should say he climbed out and discovered that the backs of his arms, legs, and torso were wet with his own blood because as he had experienced those building G-forces, blood had pooled in the back of his arms, legs, and torso and eventually had broken through the skin. He's the only one I had read about having to actually break through his skin, but they all talked about bruising that would last for weeks. They would be nauseous, vomiting. I mean, this was an incredibly unpleasant experience, But it helped them prepare for launch and landing, which is obviously very important, but it also helped them train um, physically so that they could be ready in case there was any kind of emergency. And they wanted, NASA was hoping that they would get this muscle memory. So they'd be so used to the feeling of these stresses on their bodies that if they needed to do something, there wouldn't be a second of a delay. They would just. Um, hit that abort switch and blast their capsule to safety. Quite horrific to to, to read about. It was also nice to read about how um, one of the tests, the Mastiff, which looks like a sort of spinning hamster wheel with different axes that sort of spins you around, that Jerry Cobb had done so well in that. 
Right. So this was a training device that the astronauts were using so that they could be prepared in case their capsule experienced a tumble in outer space. So in case something happened and they started rolling and flipping out in outer space, they needed to somehow learn to recover from that, to stabilize their spacecraft. And so the Mastiff is this device that spins a person sitting in a cockpit on three axes all at once. So yaw, pitch, and roll. And it looks horrible. Basically, you get strapped in, your head gets strapped in, your chest, everything. You've got a little control panel in front of you, and you've got a abort handle on one side and a little control handle on the other side. And the techs in charge of this training device would start you spinning slowly at first and then picking up speed, going faster and faster. And your job as the pilot or astronaut trainee would be to stop the spin. And Alan Shepard, who I think we all still think of as one of the best pilots, you know, in American history, who was quite brave, not a big fan of admitting defeat. <laughs> he had to hit what's called the chicken switch, the abort handle. He hit it on his very first run and had to be helped to a cot where someone brought him a bucket just in case he needed it. I mean, I think it was a really ruthless experience. And then when Jerry Cobb came along to try the Mastiff, she stayed on it for 45 minutes on her first try. And the techs operating the Mastiff were so impressed by her performance that they even commented on it, you know, after she hopped off and said, you did great. And by the way, the space capsule is not going to be nearly as bad as what you just experienced. And so that comment sort of hinted to her that her performance was good enough that people were assuming she was following the Mercury 7. You know, the people that were running that test seemed to be under the impression that she would be going to space soon. And that's good to read, actually, and good to hear because... I've heard that from a lot of the women firsthand that, you know, that they were given the impression that that they would be going into space. If they pass this, then there would be that opportunity, which is often sometimes sometimes I hear people sort of dispute that, you know, or they try to downplay what they did or what was expected of them. But they certainly did like you say from them whether it's people testing them or the or the physicians themselves actually seem to have that impression as well at some time or at least that expectation I like the way you mentioned two women who had done some tests before Cherry Cobb who became the first of the Mercury 13 Betty Skelton and Ruth Nichols Betty having been quite a sort of glamorous sounding pilot but Ruth fairly tragic yes so they were both quite famous aviators in their time. Ruth actually came from the same class of aviators as Amelia Earhart. So she had actually hoped to be the first to do an, the first woman to cross the Atlantic, but an injury from a plane crash slowed her down. And so Amelia got across first. Um, but she was really this leading figure in women's aviation in America in the thirties and forties. But by the time the late 50s rolled around. She had sort of faded a bit from the limelight. And when she went to do some of these tests on her own or through the Air Force, she performed quite well on them. The Air Force did them, it seems, out of curiosity to see how an experienced aviator might handle these stresses. Um, I, it doesn't seem as though the Air Force was seriously considering her as a Air Force or as a astronaut candidate, she was 58 when she took those tests, but she did quite well. And she afterwards publicized her experience and talked about how she thought women were naturals for space flight and how the scientific community should move forward researching women's capacity for space flight. And the Air Force's reaction was not great. The way that she had publicized her testing experience made it seem as though. The Air Force was interested in training women astronauts, which it was not. And the response was quite negative. And in fact, you know, less than a year later, uh, Nichols died by suicide. And some people in her private circle have wondered if, you know, the disappointment at not being able to pursue this dream of becoming an astronaut could have contributed to her death. It's very sad. And then the other woman who underwent these tests before the Mercury 13 was Betty Skelton. As you said, she was this acrobatic pilot. She was very glamorous. I actually have a photo of her up in my office. I have the cover of Look Magazine from 
1960, where it says, should a girl be first in space? And you see Skelton just looking stunning. But you know, her tests were really just a publicity stunt. Look Magazine and NASA worked together on the story and she got to spend some time with the astronauts and she got to do the centrifuge and some other tests. But mostly it was a way for the agency to keep the public updated on what they were doing. Um, it, she was never seriously considered um, yeah. as an astronaut candidate. And for you, as it's such an interesting story of the both Mercury men and the women, who, who was your favorite? Uh, in terms of male and female? That's a very good question. So, I mean, I think a lot of the Mercury 7 were incredible, but I don't think I would get along with any of them. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Right? Like, I think Scott Carpenter was probably really cool, but I don't think we'd get along. I think Alan Shepard seemed very impressive, but I don't think I would like him. And John Glenn, I bet, was the nicest person on the planet, but perhaps too nice, if that makes sense any sense yes from watching the uh the series the right stuff and from what i've read i funny enough although john glenn seems the straightest mm-hmm. and so consequently probably the least fun <laughs> in terms yes. of what you would have with i tend towards him as somebody i find that like you use the word the nicest mm-hmm. i i think yeah i sort of admire a lot of what he does and and, and says and, well, and, his and that's attitude. the that's a complicated thing about these guys is like, it's that duality of finding space to admire their careers and their accomplishments and everything we've talked about, their bravery, their skills, their ego. There was a lot of components of their lives that are just phenomenal. But then, especially today with our cultural awareness, looking back on a lot of their behavior makes it hard to simply admire them, if that makes any sense. You know, like there were a lot of, there was racism, there was womanizing, there was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of poor choices and bad behavior that accompanied their time at NASA. And what about the the, the women? Who's your favorite? Oh, well, I mean, Wally holds a dear, dear special place in my heart. You don't have uh, to say that just because of me. Oh, I don't. I think she, <laughs> by the end of this book, our phone calls were so regular. I would put my two children to bed. I would go into my room, close the door, sit on the bed, give Wally a call. We would just chat for hours. I think I know Wally the best. Rebecca Siegel, whose book I can totally recommend to fly among the stars. We had an interview with uh, Andrew Jones earlier on where a cat, we could see him on on screen, a cat was constantly walking back and forth as he was sat uh, in in Helsinki with the snow, a lovely snow scene behind him. I've got to say, Rebecca put up, after our interview, Rebecca put up a picture of where she was recording her interview and she was in her husband's closet sitting beneath coat hangers with like shirts on and things but actually it worked really well I think her sound quality was better than ours so so yeah so um I think we've got two very good contributors in terms of uh, locations or having to do interviews under unusual circumstances Another anniversary now, and this month marks the 60th anniversary of Space Chimp Ham's mission, a final test flight of NASA's Mercury spacecraft before they committed to launching an astronaut. Well, the mission didn't go entirely to plan. Here's an extract from our Audible series, The Space Race, featuring Michael Shinabri from the New Mexico Museum of Space History. We are walking here in front of the New Mexico Museum of Space History in Alamogordo, New Mexico, and we're walking toward the grave of Ham the Chimpanzee. Ham was the first chimpanzee to go into space. Ham was trained at Holloman Air Force Base. His name is an acronym for Holloman Aeromedical. Several hours before scheduled launch time, Chimp and Capsule were towed to the launch pad and pulled to the top of the Redstone missile that would serve to boost them into space. Two, one... The chimp is trained to pull levers in response to lights, a test of whether the brain still functions in space. Shortly after launch, the experiment starts to go wrong. When Ham was sent into space, there was a malfunction on his flight, and his flight lasted about 18 minutes. The malfunction occurred when his rocket burned up its fuel five seconds early. That doesn't sound like much, but the computer read that as a situation, abort, 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 shot his rocket up to the height 
of 150 some miles. He was only supposed to have ascended to about 114, 115 miles. You can imagine the G's that he endured. It also, in the trajectory to pick him up, put him another two hours out into the ocean for the recovery ship to reach him. Ignition. When they did, they found out that the mercury capsule was on its side, the flotation bag, because of the choppy winds and, and waves, had burst, and his capsule had taken on about 800 pounds of seawater. Ham is sealed inside a pressurized container, and that's probably what saves his life. He was inside in what's known as a, a couch, and that's pressurized. That had the actual devices in it that he performed the tasks. It had the levers that he'd pulled, just as he was taught in training. So he's picked up, he's recovered. He did so well that his trainers thought, let's put him back into service and have him make a second flight. They did so, and he pretty much was not interested in doing anything else. And so they retired him. They retired into a zoological park, and he lived there for the rest of his life until he passed away in the early 1980s. The story of Ham, that's from our series The Space Race, available on Audible, and featuring the voice of Kate Mulgrew. Now, the series won an award, but she's also just won an award for her narration, uh, including her pronunciation of... NASA. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's so, funny. Some people yeah. were didn't like that at all and other people loved it. But I just think it's her wonderful, almost Shakespearean diction of NASA. But she, I love her voice. And no, I think was, she did a fabulous job. It was a really good choice yeah. having her as uh, her uh, yeah, narration. I'd like uh, who to would think... have thought we'd have a Star Trek captain narrating one of our series? <laughs> I know we've had an astronaut. We've had loads narrate. of astronauts. I know, really, yeah, but but I don't know. If it, it's terrible, isn't it, when somebody, a fictional space captain, <laughs> actually pips for me having real astronauts. But, but, oh, my goodness, Kate Mulgrew. I'm, on, I'm doing a little Mike Myers sort of worship thing. But congratulations, Kate. Uh, and that's Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency. Do get in touch with us. Uh, please also write a review on your platform, on your on your podcast platform, platform podcast, podcast fair. If they like it, they can write a nice review on whatever platform our podcast is on for them. If they don't like it, say it was space buffoons. <laughs> the space buffoons. I think we should do that. Space buffoons. We could do a show. We could do a whole show. We could do a whole comedy show. The space buffoons. Yeah. Because oh, I'm known for my comedy oh, God. and my natural wit. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, do Move write on. a review on your podcast platform about us. They do help. Uh, <laughs> this is Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham, the space buffoons. The space buffoons, yes. Uh, thank you for listening.